A quick question for you, Denise. Being the good mother you are, do you pull band-aids off your daughter slowly or rip them off quickly? <laughs> well, John, I tend to go slowly on the band-aid front, although bear in mind that if there's any blood, then it's Mark's job, not mine. Um, and I checked with Mark, he's a rip them off quickly person. Thanks, Denise. My heart says to peel them off slowly, while my head says to rip them off quickly. And yeah, Julia is very much like Mark and removes them quickly. So then the question is, does it actually make any difference? And if so, which is less painful? Believe it or not, but a university study has been conducted on this very topic, and we'll come back to that later in this episode. It's easy for us to keep the status quo and keep doing the same things day in and day out. It's comfortable, it's easy to plan, and we know what to expect. But what might happen if we were to change something? Um, in this episode, we're going to explore the scientific method and see how we can achieve greater results through greater experimentation. Many of us probably studied science at high school or university and have vague recollections of the scientific method. But can you remember what the actual steps are? If not, let's go back about 500 years. The original components of the scientific method were developed by Sir Francis Bacon way back in 1620. Here's a quick refresher. The scientific method has six steps. It begins with a question, followed by research that leads to a hypothesis, which is then tested with an experiment the results of which are analysed, and this leads to a conclusion. It sounds simple, yet this approach has led to astonishing advances in science for centuries, John. Yes, Denise, and some suggest we can track experimental design back to the Book of Daniel, which was written around 165 BC. It describes an experiment to test the difference between consuming meat and wine versus pulses and water for 10 days, and then observing the differences. If you're curious, you can read an interesting description of that over on the ICR website. Well, John, while that was a controlled experiment, it wasn't a randomized control trial, which is often abbreviated to RCT and is considered to be the gold standard for effective research. This is a specific type of scientific experiment used to control factors that aren't under direct experimental control. Clinical trials are a good example where doctors study the effect of drugs, surgical techniques and medical treatments. The participants who enroll in the RCTs are obviously not identical and have various differences in known and unknown ways that can influence the outcome of the studies. But by randomly allocating the participants among the treatments being compared, an RCT enables statistical control over these influences. The randomization balances out the participant characteristics, both observed and unobserved, between the various groups, allowing any differences in outcome to be attributed to the particular intervention. Provided the trial is well-designed, conducted properly, and involves enough participants, an RCT can achieve sufficient control over these confounding factors to be able to deliver 
a useful comparison of the treatments being studied. In his book, Randomisters, Andrew Lee describes how radical researchers can change the world. He even provides examples of how he lives his life guided by RCTs. He stopped taking his daily multivitamins after an RCT study found them to be ineffective, and he no longer attends annual medical checkups after seeing evidence that suggests they don't reduce the chances of falling ill. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, the subtitle of the book was chosen based on the result of an RCT. He begins with the gripping tale of how ship surgeon James Lind in 1747 discovered that citrus fruit could prevent thousands of seafarers from dying of scurvy. In my blissful ignorance, Denise, I thought people with scurvy just went to sleep one night and didn't wake up the next morning. However, it turns out to be a rather gruesome death as it affects the body's connective tissues. Initially, those with scurvy feel tired and become uncoordinated. They bruise easily and their legs begin to swell. Then their gums become inflamed and rot, oozing black putrid blood. Their thighs and legs also go black and gangrenous. Apparently, in the final stages, their gums swell up so much that they can no longer eat and they soon die from internal bleeding. Scurvy was so bad that a British sailor in the Seven Years' War had less than 1% chance of being killed in action, but a horrifying 72% chance of dying from scurvy. Oh, John, and I thought the Band-Aids were bad. <laughs> Yuck. Um, but back to James Lind, the ship's surgeon. Out of frustration of having to treat so many people for scurvy, he conducted a randomised trial to test six treatments. Fortunately, one of those included citrus fruit, which made the greatest difference. But unfortunately, it then took Lind six years to write his 556-page book, A Treatise of the Scurvy, which was generally overlooked. It wasn't until 1795, almost 50 years later, that lemon and lime juice began to be routinely dispensed to sailors. Lee graphically describes all of this and many other stories in his book. Um, interestingly, Andrew Lee is now the federal member for FENA in the ACT Australia. Um, and before being elected in 2010, he was the professor of economics at the Australian National University. Oh, that's so interesting, Denise. Um, but what does all this have to do with us as enablers of change? Plenty, as we always need to be looking for the best evidence-based approaches for our work. As good scientists, we need to be questioning the content and process of our day-to-day -day work. We should be questioning why we do things and how we do them. Let's not be like Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, yet expecting different results. While running experiments in the physical world can often take weeks or months, doing them in the digital world can bring results surprisingly quickly. Um, as an example, if you send electronic newsletters using a program like MailChimp, um, and if you're on their premium plan, you can change a number of variables and see the effect. It allows you to run what they call an A-B testing campaign to see how small changes to the content can impact the results. You can change things like the subject line, the sender's name, and the time the campaign is sent. 
Their system then tracks when the messages are opened and what links are clicked. You can choose what percentage of your mailing list to use for the test. And once the results are obvious, it can automatically use the best result to send the best message to the rest of your subscribers. Yes, Denise. And on the MailChimp website, they give the example of using three slightly different headlines. I've used tests like that before and found my audience more quickly opened the messages if the subject line had a short, interesting description rather than a bland newsletter number 32 style headline. I've noticed some people like to mail merge the recipient's name into the subject line, such as, Joe, here's something you'll find useful. But personally, Denise, I just find that a bit cheesy. Yeah, fair enough, John. <laughs> Towards the end of his book, Lee provides the following 10 guiding principles for conducting RCTs. Uh, number one, decide what you want to test. Number two, think creatively about how to create a random difference in the program. Number three, consider what the control group will do. Number four, choose which outcomes to measure. Number five, select the level at which to randomize. Number six, ensure your study is large enough. Number seven, register your trial and get ethics approval. Number eight, confirm that the key people understand and support the randomization. Number nine, use a truly random procedure to split the sample. And finally, number 10, John, if possible, conduct a small scale pilot study. Uh, that's a great list, thanks, Denise. And of course, it's not always possible to run a full RCT but that shouldn't stop us from experimenting and trying new things. Our approach with the Enablers of Change YouTube videos has been to start with what those working in startups would call a minimum viable product or MVP. That is the cheapest, easiest thing that works sufficiently well to demonstrate an idea. Denise, I know we both tend to be perfectionists, but we also know this isn't ideal. We've both read the book Ish by Lynn Kazali, and keep telling ourselves that done is better than perfect. Absolutely, John. And we keep doing little tests along the way to see what works best. I recall when we first started out, we were disappointed with the recording quality of 720 pixels or less that we were getting with our Zoom recordings. As back then, they were promoting 1080 pixel recordings. We kept using the lower definition ones, but in the background, John reached out to Zoom and somehow convinced one of their engineers to help us. He spent three or four months working through various options, um, including buying different webcams and upgrading his computer, only to find that for whatever unknown reason, we couldn't record in high definition. That was about three years ago. And since then, with the explosion of users and increased usage of brand bandwidth, we sometimes only get 360 pixels. Anyway, suffice to say that we keep testing different things to improve the user experience. Oh yes, those were frustrating times, Denise. The observant ones among us may have noticed that we moved the intro music for this episode. We know many people are time poor, and while the 10 seconds of intro music right at the beginning isn't very long for a podcast or YouTube video, we know people are becoming increasingly impatient. We couldn't think of an easy way to do this as an RCT. So hey, 
let us know in the comments below the blog post whether you noticed and whether you liked it or not. And that's the other easy way to get feedback on tests you might run when you don't have the resources to run a full-blown RCT. Do something differently and either wait to see if anyone notices or just ask them. You could, for example, send a short e-survey asking a couple of quick questions. We've done that and get surprisingly high response rates as people appreciate that we've taken the time to seek out their opinion. Before we finish, let's go back to the Band-Aid dilemma. Is it less painful to remove them quickly or slowly? As it happens, an RCT run with 65 volunteers from the James Cook University in Queensland showed that quick wins the day. The overall mean pain score for the fast Band-Aid removal was 0.92, while for the slow Band-Aid removal, it was 1.58. This represents a highly significant difference. And if you're curious to know more, we'll include the reference to the article at the end of the blog post. La la la, John, I'm going with slow. <laughs> but that's it for this episode. If it sparks something for you, add a comment below the blog post and tell us about your experiences using RCTs, including any tips or further ideas about them. We don't want this just to be a one-way conversation, so please join in by sharing your thoughts and ideas with us. <laughs> and if you happen to like this episode, take a moment to give it a rating using the handy widget at the end of the blog post. Just click the number of stars to indicate your rating. That's another little thing that we've been trialing. All the best until we meet again. Bye.